0: Welcome, closers. Today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season two on sales. I'm your host, Jordan Moila, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actual insights to help you grow your property management empire. So whether you manage a 100 or a 1,000 units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I
1: bet on sure things sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought.
0: Think about it. Today, I have the privilege of talking to a sales icon, a man who has dedicated himself to mastering his craft. First, as a producer, then as a trainer, and now as a thought leader that is dedicated to helping sales professionals thrive. Victor Antonio spent 20 years as a top-tier B2B sales exec. He's the guy Verizon, Citrix, and Sprint call when they need sales insight, and he's even got his own Spike TV show part strategist, part philosopher, part artist, and 100% hustler, I am incredibly excited to have an early influence in my career on the podcast today. Welcome to the show, Victor. Jordan, thank you very much, man. I'm super excited to be on this show. So thank you for having me. Well, it's it's an absolute pleasure. We first met digitally and now you're going to be our opening keynote at PM Grow in January, which I'm super excited about. <laughs> so you're going to be bringing the heat there, but for those that don't know, give us a little bit of your background. How did you get started in sales?
1: I'm originally from Chicago. My mother said, you know, son, go to school, get the education, get the job. So I got I went to school, got an engineering degree, electrical engineering degree, and an MBA, right? Went into corporate America. Started doing my engineering thing, realized after a while, Jordan, I didn't like it. So I moved around a little bit and I finally uh, landed on sales. When I landed on sales, it was like, you know, it's like I hit my hyperpad. That's the quick version of how I got into sales. Since I started on the B2B space, I had a technical background and they were looking for a salesperson with a technical background. I also speak Spanish. So they were looking for those two things. And man, I just fit the mold. And my wife was like, yeah, why don't you go for it? Let's see what happens. And, you know, we haven't looked back ever since.
0: And then how did you make the jump from there to getting into sales training?
1: May 9th, 2001, 3.48 p.m. to be exact. I called it quits. So I was a president of sales and marketing. It was a $420 million company. And, you know, like in life, Jordan, you know, you, I I just hit everything I wanted to hit. I did everything I wanted to do. I traveled literally globally, internationally. Uh, I was very successful, but I felt, I don't know, I wanted to do something different. And so I didn't initially get into sales training. I actually made a conscious decision to reach back into the neighborhoods. And I started speaking to high schools and colleges. And what I wanted to do is motivate, you know, young kids to make it through high school, make it through college, graduate and get a great job. And so I did that for like maybe three, four years. But then, you know, the pool of where I, my home was, was sales. So around 2000, I'll say three and four is when I decided to say, you know what, we need to get back into sales because that's where I belong. And that's where I made the decision to move from being a speaker to going back to being a sales trainer. And you know, the, the compelling reason was I hated the way other people trained. You know what I mean? You've been in those courses where you got these trainers who train you and you just want to fall asleep. I wanted to do it different, Jordan. And for those of you who watch my, my videos, you'll see what I mean. I try to keep it exciting, but I also using borrowing your phrase, I I try to, you know, create actionable insights that people go, ah, oh, that's what I need to do. And when I see those light bulbs going off in the crowd when I'm talking to them and they're motivated because they're learning, not motivated because they're excited and you know they're on this placebo, they're motivated because they have the right tools. And I think that is what really charges me.
0: Yeah, you're bridging the context of things that people cannot just get wowed by, but actually use on a day to day basis. And I want to take it all the way home right out of the gate. I just want to go straight into positioning
1: the people
0: that I I work with, the people that I help, Victor. These are small businesses. They're service based businesses. And if you put a hundred of them in a room, at times, it could be challenging to differentiate one business from the other. They're all good at their craft. They're focused on the craft. They're experts in the craft. But when it comes to that consumer-facing positioning, they struggle to know what it means to actually differentiate. What are your thoughts on positioning and differentiation?
1: So, so let me give you a quick story. So we live in Alpharetta, Georgia, right? Been in this house for 14 years. And I remember this was the first house we saw. And my wife was like, ah, this is it. I'm like, sweetie, we need to look at more of them. This, When we bought it, this was like, I think, a 14-year-old house already. So it's 28 years old. So I was like, "Ah, I don't want a used house. I want a new house. You know, I want a brand new shiny pony type of thing, right? And so we looked at other houses. And sure enough, the real estate agent that was with us, uh, we would walk into a house. And Jordan, I swear to you, he did this on like the second or third house. We walk in. He walked in front of us, right? He opened the door, looked at it, and said, no not for you. And we're like, what? Are we going to look at it? We drove all the way over here. Are we going to look at it? He goes, no, this is not for you. Let's go. And I was like, you know, who is this guy? And every time we walked into a different house, and I remember one in in particular I liked, because I remember saying, this house seems overpriced. He goes, no, it's not. He said, I'll tell you why. Let me walk you through it. And I remember we walked to the kitchen. He says, see that? Granite, black splash, da-da-da, da-da-da. He described, right? That's a $20,000 upgrade. See that right there in the next room? He points something else out. That right there is a $15,000 upgrade. You're not going to get it in the house in this price. And he kept doing that. Mm-hmm. And then so when we, when we circled back, he wouldn't let us make a decision. He says, now that you looked at all, again, 10, 11, whatever it was, you know, he says, let's narrow it down to three. And I remember I picked you know, some that were out of our profile that we told him. He goes, no, that's not what you said you wanted. You said you wanted this. But he was reminding me of what my goals were because he knew him up front. And so finally, we come back to this house, right? And my wife is all in, you know, because she's like, man, this has the bones, because she's all about the bones, right? The structure. And I remember we walked outside. He, he was telling me on different points, but then he says, I want you to step over here. And we went into the backyard where, uh, by the way, we're backed up into like a hundred acre farm. And he said, stand right here and look at your house. And so I look at the house and I said, yeah, it's a nice looking house. He says, no, no just stand there and just, absor- you know, just absorb it. I'm like, what is he talking about? Then he finally says, what do you hear? And I go, nothing. He says, it's the middle of the day, Victor, and there's no noise. You can't hear the traffic, you know, and he was doing this stuff throughout. What's my point of all this? When when people tell me that they can't sell, several things are happening in this market, Jordan. You know as well as I do that the the timeline, you know, of selling is going to be always broken up into pre-internet and post-internet. Pre-internet, the salesperson had the information, the consumer wanted the information, so the consumer was willing to listen to the salesperson to garner that information in order to make a better decision. Fast forward, post-internet, everybody has information, depending on who you believe in terms of studies, you know the buyers can be 57 to 70 to 80% into the buying cycle, which means they're smart people, right? They, they know what they want. So they're not looking for a relationship, so to speak, even though that's part of it, but they're looking for a transaction. They know what they want. And so what is our job then? Our job as a salesperson is to say, you know what? I know you know a lot, but I think you're missing a couple of things. Like, for example, you see that granite countertop? That's a $20,000 upgrade, Mr. Know-it-all. You know, mm-hmm. and that's what customers want. If you tell a customer things they already know, mm-hmm. then you're not positioning yourself as an expert. They go, yeah, I knew that. The only way to position yourself as an expert is to tell them something they don't know. So if I may introduce two phrases, there's product parity then there's information parity, right? Today, we've achieved product parity on almost all products. In other words, you can't tell the difference, Jordan, between one product and another product. You simply can't. And even if there is a difference, that difference won't last because somebody will develop it within two months. So then we have information parity. Well, believe it or not, information parity is almost impossible to achieve. What does that mean? This is where the advantage is, Jordan. I think today the salesperson is more valuable than ever. Information parity is basically when we both know the same. But if I know a little bit more than you, Jordan, using your word, if I can use my insight and show you something that you haven't thought about, mm-hmm. that might help you reduce your costs, right? That might help you position this better for the long term, whatever it may be, then all of a sudden I'm listening to you. So my definition of insight that I've always defined is information beyond the obvious. That simple definition, information beyond the obvious. What mm-hmm. customers want today is information beyond the obvious. That is how you position yourself.
0: Wow, guys, I'm taking notes myself right now that was so incredibly cogent I could not agree more what I hear you saying is that there is a necessary presumption that you must bring to the sales interaction where you assume that you are the person that is going to lead this person where they need to go you assume it's on you to have an opinion about the best outcome for the buyer and that is the position from which you you interact with them as opposed to being a hundred percent reactive and basically just describing a list of bullet points of what you do
1: yeah, I know. I, it really is. My friend, you probably know him, Grant Cardone. So, you know, I've worked with him. Uh, you know, my university is on his university. And so we worked well. And we did a three-day boot camp this past March together, right? And the one word, the one thing he just kept saying, he says sales is all about certainty. That's his, that was like, you know, his thing. He was like, it's about certainty. There's two types of certainty going on. One is you got to be certain that you know what you're talking about that you know you have the value that they want, right? Mm-hmm. But the customer lacks certainty. Mm-hmm. And, it, and so if you got a scale on one side, there's certainty, and the other side, their anxiety. Your job is to raise that customer's certainty. you know. And I've, I like the way he positioned that phrase because that's really it in a nutshell, right? They're unsure of what they want to buy, You know, so we need to help them make that buying decision. And the only way you help people make a buying decision is not by pressuring them, right? Not by, you know, hard selling them. It's by making them more certain of their decision, which is what the real estate guy did to me 14 years ago. Hmm. He was just making me certain. I said, no, you need to look at this. For those who, you know, have you read the book, The Challenger Sale?
0: I have not. I'm familiar, but I've not read it.
1: The, the number two book on my shelf, right? Spin Selling by Neil Rackham is number one. The Challenger Sale is number two, right? And, you know, the Challenger Sale talks about it. it's It's like the first empirical study on selling since like 1987, right? This, it was released in 2011, but still valid. The Challenger Sale is a profile. There's five different profiles. But the Challenger is a person that challenges, isn't a jerk, but challenges the customer's assumptions in such a way that the customer goes, huh, again, I didn't think about that never thought about that way, never even thought about considering that right there. And that's when you sell value. You often hear people talk about, you know, sell value. And I them, what does that mean? And there's two types of value. There's, There's qualifiable value and quantifiable value. Qualifiable value sounds like this. Ours is faster. How much faster? Really fast. It's bigger too. How big? Really big, right? It's huge. How huge? Really huge. That's not quantifiable. Quantifiable says, look, you buy my product. I don't care what you're using. I'm going to tell you where you're going to save money. If you buy this, I'll show you where you're going to make more money. I'm going to show you and I'm going to quantify that number for you. And I've, you know, I've had people challenge me, Jordan. They say, Victor, well, there's certain things you can't quantify. I said, point it out. I will quantify anything you throw my way,
0: Jordan. I'll take that challenge on with anybody. I'll find a number, Victor. The first thing that comes to my mind is social media. I'm a social media marketing expert. <laughs> there are certain categories of of goods and items. Personal development would be another example. I and mean, you walk me through some of those squishier use cases. So, so, and, and by the
1: way, I've worked with a, a couple of social media companies who says I can't quantify the number. I'm like, of course you can quantify it. If you're tracking the analytics, if you got the data. And then that's usually the key, Jordan. Most people can't quantify because they're not tracking it properly, right? And so when I worked with a social media company, the company's called Yepser, and you know they were doing the same thing. People were challenging. They'd walk in and I said, well, quantify the value of this. I said, well, okay, well, let's look at your analytics. Typically, what I would do is I asked a customer, I said, show me your web traffic. And we talk about unique visitors. We talk about visitors, right? There's a big difference, right? Unique visitors, visitors, right? We talk conversions rate. What are you converting, right? What's your average order size? What are they buying, right? And so we gather that number, right? Whatever that number is. I said, now, if your conversion rate is such that all I need to do is track how much traffic my social media posts are dragging to your website, right? So if I tag my social media posts in such a way that I can track it, then I know how much traffic I'm driving to your site. And if you're telling me the conversion rate is x, well then I can quantify to some extent that number of, you know, the justification for that product or service. And that's where I would start. But most people can't track it because they don't have the data. They're not tracking. And so when so what happens is a salesperson walks in there trying to sell social media and the guy says quantify it for me. And, well, you know, on average, you know, Jordan, it's going to be this much. And, you know, it really ranges. And, you know, we think there'll be a 10% bump on average. You know, they'll do that dance, right? And the customer just, what, shuts down, has no clue. And all of a sudden, the customer asks you, quantify that, pushed you back on your mental heels, and you're like, "Ah, ah, 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 well, it depends, you know, and you start spewing all kinds of crap that makes no sense, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. And, and And they can detect that within seconds, right? But now, what if we take this approach? What if we take this approach in terms of quantifying and positioning? Let's tie them together. Customer says to me, Victor, quantify social media for me. I should be more than happy to. I said, let's look at your numbers first. Let me ask you a question. Because as a salesperson, what do we do? We take control of the conversation, right? Let me ask you a question. I said, do you have your data in front of you? And they typically always say like 99% of the time, uh, no. Do you, can you get the numbers real quick? And they're like... Uh, we'll try. And so sure enough, I'll wait 10, 15 minutes. They don't show up. I said, but you know, I ask them again. So, but on average, you know, how many, how much traffic do you get a day? And I asked for unique visitors. I asked for also for, again, visitors. I asked for page views, duration on the website, so forth and so on, right? This is stuff I can work with and they don't know. And the first thing I do is I tell them, I said, you're asking me to give you a number when you don't even know your own analytics, which means... <laughs> Problem number one, we need to fix that. Boom. Did I just take control of that conversation? Did I just, absolutely. Did I just ball and hammer them? Right? And, and by the way, I'm doing it from a position of love, right? If I can put it that way, because I'm trying to help you. You know, let's track it. Let's see if we can help you. But if you don't know your numbers, because that's my whole thing, you know, it's like my, my show, Life or Debt on Spike, right? I always ask couples, what's your number? Tell me your numbers. You got to know your numbers. And most companies don't know their numbers. And so that's where I would begin to quantify. And by the way, in the back of my mind, if I'm a social media expert, I have the industry norms. In this industry, property management, people who have websites have this conversion rate. That's the industry norm, right? I would also have some numbers as cross-sectional numbers in terms of across different industries. That's this number. My question to you is, Mr. Customer, what's your number? So already now we have a problem. If his conversion number is lower than the average or the norm,
0: that's a problem. And maybe I've highlighted something for him. Maybe your website stinks. Well, it's a way to generate insight. You're absolutely right. The discovery process, leaning into the discovery process, what are the benefits? First, you have something to work with. Second off, like you said, if the customer doesn't know any of that information, you're now in the in the position of actually pointing that out and generating those insights. I couldn't agree more. You also said specificity is key. Any good offer is specific. That is the opposite of we're number one. We've been in the business forever. There's so much generic banal phrasing that is not specific, eschewing that, getting off of that worthless crutch is one of the pro- first processes to good positioning. Now, I want to kind of dive into response block selling. This was of all the things that you talk about, and I do consider you to be prolific in the sense that you do address many, many sales topics. Response block selling is one thing that you're known for. It was my entry point. Can you give me some caveats of what response block selling will or won't do because obviously if you're selling garbage if the rest of your sales process is broken this is this is going to be a superficial band-aid so what caveats on the front side would you give around when response block selling will actually move the needle for for a sales organization
1: well let's let's just assume let's let's be positive about this and assume that you have to have a decent product. So let's call that the first caveat, right? Yep. You have a, a competitive product, with a competitive price. If your product, as you say, crap, well, I can't help you. Nothing will help you, right? Because in the long run, you'll lose. If your pricing is so out of bounds, like not even a little expensive or a whole lot expensive, just way out of the park, they're not going to buy. If your service supporting the product is horrible, this won't help. This helps people who are trying to look for that 1% that or 2% differential than the other customer, right? Because as we know, in the sales process today, George, it's the conversation that we're having with the customer, much like the social media example we talked about. It is that type of conversation that, that makes the difference between buying and not buying from you or your competitor or at least staying with the incumbent. And so it's having those conversations. I think this is powerful. Response block selling, in a nutshell, is about reducing buyer resistance, you know, give me two minutes to set up the story and I'll do it quickly. Seminar company contacted me back in 2006. Yeah, I think that's the year 2006. It says, Victor, we want you to come out. We, we sell a $3,000 product, a $6,000 product, It's a software product. Uh, what we want you to do is train on the product, you know, train people in the room and then close them. And so I said, okay. So long story short, I started doing it. My close rate was like 17, 18%. Their average was 33%. And so this guy named Clint Sanderson, you know, they considered the guru of the company, right? Says, Victor, I know what's wrong. He says, listen, people have reasons why they don't want to buy in their heads, but they're not going to mention it because they may be embarrassed. For example, if I'm selling a software product, nobody's going to say, I don't understand. That looks really technical. Nobody's going to say that because nobody wants to look that stupid, especially with 100 people in a room. He says, your job is, and here's what he said, is to raise the objection and then tie it down. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, how do you do that? He's like, well, I don't know. You just got to raise it and then tie it down, right? It was like, didn't help me at all. And then this part I'm making up because I don't remember. About a month or two later, I came up with the structure of how to do this. And I'll lay it out for those of you who are listening. Every time you're speaking one-on-one with a customer or one to a group, doesn't matter. There are typically five to seven objections that they have in their heads, Five to seven objections that they have in their head. There's never really more than seven. If you really analyze them, you can probably break them and categorize them into seven. Knowing that, I show in my book, you know, that that you're going to provide a link to at the end of this conversation, Jordan, that psychologically, and this is the power point, so really focus it on what, about what they say if you're listening in. If the customer actually verbalizes the objection, your price is too high, now's not a good time that looks difficult to use. The chances of you closing that deal have just dropped dramatically. Let me say it again. When the customer verbalizes the objection, your chances drop dramatically because now you have to defend that position. And when you're defending a position like that, you're losing the conversation. And this is why that whole ABC thing, always be closing. You know, again, it fits in certain areas, right? In selling. If you're doing a more transactional, commoditized selling, ABC does work. But when you're selling a complex system or something expensive property, it doesn't work. People don't want to be pressured into buying. It's actually people have something called sales reactants, which means they get negative on you. So response block selling says, look, we don't want them to verbalize it because if they verbalize the objection, your price is too high, they've taken a position and you're less likely to shake them from that position. But if I raise the objection, I resolve the objection, and then I tie it down By getting them to agree that it's not expensive, I just reduced the resistance a little bit. For example, when I was doing the software program demonstration, I knew that one of the objections was, that looks hard to use. That's the objection. That looks hard to use. People are not going to tell me that, but they're going to walk out of the room, say, let me think about it, Victor. But what they're really thinking is, it's hard to use. That's why I need to think about it. It's just an excuse to get out of the room. But from from the front of the room, what I would do, Jordan, I would say something like this. I would show them a couple of things. I said, look. I said, many of you may be looking at this and going, you know, that looks really hard to use. Notice I just raised the objection. Then I'll say, I I offer to resolve. But if I can show you that it really isn't that tough, would you at least be open to it? And most people just go, yeah, sure. Mentally, they'll go, yeah, sure. Show me, Victor. Then I move into the third phase. So raise the objection, offer to resolve. Then I demo. I said, look, all you got to do, if you wanted to do this, you would click right there. You'll you drag, you drop, you cut and paste, and boom, there it is. So I've just demoed something, right? Mm-hmm. Then I would tie it down like this. Based on what I've just shown, you do think with a little practice and our support that you could do it. And if I'm talking one-on-one, the person says, yeah, I think I can do it. And all of a sudden, I just tied down that objection. Here's why. If I agree now that it's not that hard, I'm not, at the end of the sales process, I'm not going to go, Victor, it's too hard. I just agreed that it's not hard. So I can't use that as an objection at the close. And so imagine if you're listening to this, you know the five to seven typical objections. What if during that 45 minute conversation, whatever it may be, you start blocking these objections throughout the conversation. In other words, you plan out your conversation. Now, again, you can still freestyle, you know what I mean? Your conversation, but you know, there's certain objections you have to tie down if you want to close the buyer, and that's what response block selling is. So, my close rate went from 17, definitely hit 33. I would float in the 50s and maybe even 60s, and a couple of times I spiked above that. But I think around 50 60 was a good range to be in.
0: And these, this is a group full of essentially strangers that had not met you prior to this training. Is that correct? That is correct. Good point. They'd never met me. That is insane. I feel like what you articulated is so simple and almost it's it's almost deceptively simple, but there's so much power in that. In first addressing the problem, and then secondarily, the turn there is opening them up to the possibility that the problem could be resolved. To me, that's just like across the board, just a life lesson of you're in a situation, you feel like there's an intractable problem. The first step to overcoming it is opening up your mind to the possibility that the problem can be overcome. You're asking for permission to people consider, and then you're giving the demonstration. And lastly, that tie down. And at the moment of the tie down, what happens if somebody says, no, I'm not satisfied, Victor, you didn't fully address my concern.
1: Okay. And, and again, so that is, like anything else, you loop it back in, right? He'll say, no, I, I still don't think it's that easy. I said, well, tell me what you want to build. You know what I mean? I could have said that. But, but the thing is, if you do this enough times, let's say, that, let's say that for the first 10, let's go even exaggerate, let's first 20 times, you're gonna get that type of belligerent response every time. And here's what will happen by the 20th time. You know what to anticipate, you know what they're gonna have problems with, and by the 20th time, you'll know what to demo. So for example, if my first demo was too simple, click, drag, drop the whole bit, I'll tell myself, you know, next time I present, because this guy just turned me down, next time I present, what I'm going to do is add that, what he just asked me about, because I've heard it two or three times already. Because isn't that what selling is? It's an iteration process, right? We iterate our pitch. We start adding things. So this, you know, the response block selling is really a structure within a structure. And so demo piece can change. Even your wording can change within that structure. But after a while, you get it. And by the way, before I forget to mention, Jordan, there is a caveat to this. Never raise an objection that isn't there. Mm. This is important. So if an objection is never raised, don't raise it. Okay, that'll just hurt you. So, but but psychologically, I want to emphasize one thing, Jordan, that when you raise the objection, mentally, the, the prospect is thinking, one, man, I'm glad he raised it because I was too afraid to ask. Two. That person's thinking, man, he's being pretty upfront. Like, for example, on pricing, I'm not the cheapest sales trainer out there. I'll tell people, i said, look, many people tell me my sales training is expensive. And I can understand that. But if I can show you in the long run how it's going to benefit you, you're going to get your money back faster, would you at least be open to considering my services? And they're like, it's almost like a challenge. Like, yeah, go ahead, Victor, show me. And then I would demo something, right? Whether it's a a case study, uh, walk them through their products, tell me what you're selling, tell me what your close rate is, tell me how much money you're missing, tell me how many deals you've lost. And by the way, Jordan, that's another thing I do when I do my pitch. You know, when people say, well, tell me how you can help me sell. Well, let me understand your problem. What's your close rate? How many opportunities do you have in a pipeline every month? You know, what's your average order size, right? Tell me what your sales cycle looks like. And you know what they typically say? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think... I don't know, I think. And what do I do? I pounce right on that. I said, well, wait a minute, you want me to give you a number, but you don't even have numbers for me to analyze. I said, I find that a little bit unfair. So let's walk through it. Why don't you know the average order size? And you know what I mean? And all I'm doing, Jordan, is not being a jerk. I'm challenging, according to the challenges, I'm just pushing them back on their heels gently. So they'll respect my position as an authority in the world of selling. And you can do that for property management as well.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree. That's exactly what I was about to say. For those of you that are listening, you are a property manager, you're a property management entrepreneur, and you likely fall into two Buckets. You either view yourself as being successful with sales. That's your jam. It's an area of preference and comfortability. Or you're somebody that says it's important, but it's not my natural aversion. If you say it's not important and it's not my natural aversion, well, then you're, there probably isn't a good podcast for you. But you're in one of two buckets. It's either your jam or it's something that you're struggling with. So if sales is something you would have a natural disposition towards, your company is growing, doing well, then recognize this is a tool set that as you scale, as you put more people in your organization under you, as you continue to replace yourself, this is an accessible tool set, step one, because this is not built on charisma, Victor. That's what I like. This is fundamentally not built on charisma, which to the latter category, the person that is struggling, that doesn't feel like a sales pro, that is not charismatic by nature. This is something that they can use. And it's a helpful framework to stop and to prevent you from getting mad at the money and blaming the customer. Oh, the customer always wants to beat me up on price, etc. I feel like that anybody can use this tool set. And I know that of the folks that you've trained, surely you see these two buckets. You got the guy that's just like fluid and into it and the person that's kind of awkward, but still realizes that they need to master it.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Sales Benchmark Index, it's a website. They wrote a book called Making the Number. Uh, Great group of people. I think they're out of Texas. Uh, A few years back, released their study, their version. It's the first one I've seen that says 13, 13% of people in selling are natural born salespeople. They have that charisma. They have the gift of the gab, whatever it may be. And so they have that. So that means 87% are not natural born salespeople. I like to believe I fall into that. I think I had to learn how to be charismatic. I think I had to learn how to say things. I think what people don't see is how much practice goes into a presentation or a pitch. Everybody only sees the final product. When I'm on stage, people see that. What they don't see is me walking around a room talking to myself you know, rehearsing stuff in my head, putting up a graphic goes, ah, that's a lousy graphic. That doesn't really represent that. Right. And fighting with myself to try to get the right flow going. And so it requires that. So if you're listening to this and you're just like, well, I'm not a natural born salespeople. Well, welcome to the club. You're in the majority. 87% of us aren't. We just had to work at it. So the real question is, if you're struggling with sales and you're not natural at it, are you putting in enough time? Are you working your sales process in your head?
0: Where do you prioritize it in your business? Are you focused on operations and sales marketing as kind of like a little bit of a sideshow? that you question that you view as a cost center, or do you view it as an equal player in your business? Now, at an enterprise level, of course, that's a given. But for small businesses, the sales and marketing function tends to be one of the most underfunded parts of the organization. And it's reflected in the overall priority that's given to developing that skill set.
1: Jordan, that right there was gold, man, what you just said, because it is the most underfunded part of a business. But yet, it is it is like almost like you know, like in capitalism, the economic engine, sales and marketing are the engines. You know, sales specifically, one can call it marketing now, right? It's a popular phrase. That, you know, that right there is the profit center. Sales is a profit center. Everybody else is a cost center. We don't feed the profit center. We spend times. You know, it's it's amazing to me, Jordan. If I could just call my mini rant here, you know, you got these businesses that spend. You know, I mean if you're a small business, you know, you take time to get your business card, right? You take time to, you get the right office, you pick out the right furniture, you get the best computer equipment, you get all this stuff, right? You get the fiber optic network, make sure you have business, ethernet, blah, 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 all this stuff. And you're spending all this money. And then when it comes to sales training, you're like, wow, 300 bucks for a, a workshop. That's expensive.
0: <laughs> expensive.
1: I just want to oh. choke the crap out of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? Because keep in mind, that the customer doesn't see your office most of the time. They see the salesperson, which is where, as you say, it's the most underfunded center in any business. It it is a mind blower. And if you take it to the enterprise level, you talk about a company who has, let's say, a manufacturing company who spends millions, millions trying to build the business, get the factories, machinery, the whole bit, and then they what? Chintz on the actual sales training. And their excuse is, well, you know, but you know, we just can't really quantify the value. Well, let me quantify something for you. You're
0: not going to get any sales if they can't sell. (laughs) Yeah, quantify that, you know, (laughs) Uh, you know, Victor, I read an article the other day on uh, the Puritan work ethic. And I feel like there's a lot of, I don't know, folk philosophy that kind of undergirds a lot of what we do. And part of what you're talking about to me relates to the free market, the meritocracy, right? Hey, the best product wins, Victor. I'm just focused on having the best product, and therefore, I deserve to win. That sales stuff, you know, that that's just that's glitter on top of the real thing. <laughs> nope. You could have the best product in the world, but if you you get your ass
1: kicked on the sales side, you're not going to win. You're not going to win. And again, you know that that whole meritocracy thing, right? I built it. It's great. I mean, what else do I need to do? It's a great product. Of course, they're going to buy, Victor. And I'm like, are you an idiot? Unless somebody's out there hustling, positioning it for it, quantifying the value, showing them how they can use it, you know, really explaining it to them, they're not going to buy. Again, if it's a commodity, well, just, let's just go to Amazon and buy, it, right? As it gets more
0: complex, we're selling property. That's a big. That's a that's a different animal. That's a complex sale. You mentioned earlier the concept of product parity. I want to tie this back to that. The non discriminating consumer, put yourself in the shoes of the consumer. We're all in that category with various goods, and services. If somebody tells me, if a car mechanic tells me that I need a new transmission, I cannot audit what I am being told. I can go to another mechanic, but I fundamentally cannot audit the nature of the good or service because I don't have that skill set. When an investor or an accidental landlord is approaching you about your property management services and you're somehow expecting that they're going to have this deep penetrating analysis that's going to recognize the the technical merits of your service offering, you're being delusional. You've Reduce down, put yourself in the consumer's shoes and think about what are the real grading criteria and rubric that they have access to. And for the most part, those are absolutely going to be non-technical, emotional types of things. That's my basic view on it. I do want to get into some of the specific objections. I want people to taste and see and feel how practical this is. Let's just walk through some of these objections because guess what? They're not specific to my industry. The first one by far that I hear more than any others. And this is where some of that anger comes from is Victor. You know what? They're just a bunch of money-grubbing price shoppers. And all they want to know is what is my price? How do you respond to that? How do you deal with that?
1: Now, there's two scenarios. If somebody's telling you, just send me the price. You know, I've had people do that. And I've had customers tell me, said, Victor, what do I do if somebody just says, send me the price? I said, well, you have a problem already. If somebody is just saying, send me the price, that means it's a bake-off at that point, right? They just want price. It's just a bake-off. And then you're going to see who makes the top three. And you may celebrate if you're in the top three, but the top three is basically caging you in the corner so the buyer can come in and you know use each person against each other to try to what? Push the price down even further. And so one thing I tell people is that when somebody says, give me the price, I said, I'm walking away. I'm walking away. People say, Victor, how much does it cost us, you know, for you to come in and sales train? And I'm like, well, before I give you the price, I'll give it to you if you really want it. I said, well, tell me what you're trying to do. And if they say to me, we just want price, I'm like, here you go, click mm-hmm. and send it. But I know I don't want to waste any time because if they're not willing to walk with me through what they really need, then I know they're price hunting. And if they came on price, as the old adage goes, they'll leave on price. And I've discovered that people who actually just buy on price are your worst customers. Again, the way I qualify people, if they just want price, here you go, goodbye. And about 20, 30% of the people that come my way are like that, Jordan. That's my my, my finger in the wind type of number. And I'm like, good, go. But I don't give them any more of my time. And by the way, when I'm talking to people on the phone and they said, Victor, what's your price? I said, I'll give them the price, right? And so when I give them the price just on their reaction, they'll tell me, are they in or out? Look, the Wharton School of Business uh, did this study where they said 20% of the people will never buy from you, right? I'm, ru- I'm rounding up numbers here. 20% will never buy from you, right? Because they're a bunch of know-it-alls and they're just price hunters, whatever it may be. 20% will always buy from you because they can see the value of what you offer. And this says right in the middle, there's a 60%. These are people who are uncertain or complacent, uncertain, I don't know which way to go, Victor. Complacent, ah, it's good enough. And our job is to make those people either more certain or create a sense of urgency to move them off complacency. So be okay with losing 20% of the deals. So, when, again, when somebody talks about pricing, that, you know, again, just send me some pricing. I'm always trying to get them on the phone because if I can't talk to them, then, you know, again, they're just going to judge me on pricing. See, I'm trying to position myself as an expert. You know, if you want to buy a piece of property, well, tell me what you're looking for. Here's the key thing. You know this already, Jordan. It is the quality of my questions that will determine their perception of my value. It is the quality of my questions that will determine their value of me. If I ask simple questions, they're like that's not very deep, Victor. But if I ask some questions, I go, oh, uh, I don't know. Nobody's ever asked me that, Victor. Then I know I got a great question. You know what I mean? I got you. You know, some of those, I got you. Because I'm making them think. Look, when people are hunting on prices because they're, they're, they're scared. I want to get the best price. I got to get the best price. I don't want to get screwed, right? Because right. somewhere in my past, I got screwed mm-hmm. and I overpaid. But if you ask any rational person, you know, they'll tell you, I'll pay a little more if I know that I trust you and I'm getting what I'm getting. They'll pay a little more. Yeah. So look, we took a company, a technology company, we took them from $14.1 million to $98 million in two and a half years, and we were selling on average about 30% above our competitors. 30% price above our competitors, because we had learned how to sell value. We knew how to position. We knew how to position and We knew how to create that sense of urgency or create that level of certainty. The customer goes, okay, you know what? I'll pay. Anybody listening to this, this podcast, they've been in a situation, and I'm talking to you out there, you've been in a situation where you could have bought it cheaper, but you went with somebody else. Why? Let's go back to your mechanic example about the transmission, right? First of all, if the person, it's the way they talk to you about your car, And the way they explain it, that will determine your comfort level with them. Mm -hmm. Because you don't have knowledge. But if somebody takes the time, so let me break it down for you. A transmission is basically a box. You know what I mean? And in this box, we have this. And this is what's happening. Mm
0: -hmm. Now,
1: and I would say, you can now, here's a response block, right? Now, you can go, you're probably thinking, you know, can I get it cheaper elsewhere? And the answer is yes. In fact, if you go down the road here, you might get a 5% discount. Uh, don't go over here because they charge about 20% more. And so here's our price. You know what I mean? And so, by the way, that was the demo piece. I, I'll share with them what everybody else is charging. And what do you think most people are going to do? No, no. I like you. You're honest. You're upfront. front. we
0: have
1: trust. We have trust. And you're not trying to pin me down to do business with you. You're basically shooing me away. Because if I'm the expert in automotive, I'm talking to you like I'm an expert. I know what you need. I know what your car needs. I've worked with these cars before. You can go down the road if you want. Don't care. But if you want to leave it here, I'd be more than happy to do this for you. Have it ready by tomorrow. What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And it's
0: that. See, see it's that power of that conversation, man. So we get past that. We deal with the initial objection. And the next one is we're having this great dialogue. There's the perception of this person being open to my expertise. Great back and forth. But then it ends with, you know what? I really love what you're offering here, but I need to talk to XYZ first my spouse, my brother, my uncle, my senator. Walk me through responding to that. By the way,
1: that is the toughest. The, the, what do we call that? Deferring to the other authority. Because, you know, in a situation where you're selling to a couple, well, I need to check with my wife, I need to check with my husband. Unless you can get them in the same room together, which is the obvious answer, right? Get them in the room together so now you got them both in front of you. But reality isn't you know like that all the time, right? They're not going to be there. So here's the best strategy I found out because I think that is the only objection I think is the toughest one to block. But here's what I've learned. Since writing the book, Response Block Selling, I want to share with you psychologically what's in the book and works very well, and that I found works very well. And that is, when somebody says, "I ha- by the way, early on, I'm, I'm gonna ask the basic questions like a good salesperson, right? Uh, in terms of making a decision, you know, is it gonna be you, or is it gonna be your you, you and your husband, you and your wife? And you're gonna try to get them in the room together, the whole bit. So let's say you've assumed you've done that, but you just can't get them in the room together, right? Now, you know that once you leave, you know, Jordan, are you married, Jordan? I am. Okay, so I'm married. I know that if I'm going to make a big decision, something that impacts the house, my wife wants in on that decision. It's just that simple. Do you know what I mean? You're not going to get away from that. I mean, again, you just can't. So what I'm going to do is I know that I can't get her in the room, right? If I'm the salesman, I can't get the wife in the room. So I'm going to have to deal with the husband. My job is what I've learned with that specific objection. That specific objection is to say to him, he says, let's put your wife aside for a second. Just put your wife aside. Based on what I've shown you, everything we've talked about, if it was your decision, what would that be? And he would say, Victor, I, want, I, I would do it, right? But most people would stop there. Here's what I always ask. Why? Why would you do it? You know, and now what I am training him to do is to parrot back to me three reasons why it's a good idea. Because those are the three reasons he's going to take back to his wife. That's what I try to get from him. In other words, by the way, this also works in, in a B2B sale where you don't have a decision maker in the room, but you know, you got your champion, right? Your champion's like, yeah, Oh, Victor, I yeah. love your stuff. Love your stuff. I dig your stuff, Victor. Yeah. I said, why do you dig it? Why do you think, I know you bought into it. You just told me you did. I said, but you know, why do you, why would you think your boss would buy into it? Why do you think your wife would buy into this? And then now he's going to say, because of this, because of this, because of this. Now, if he gives me two points, maybe I'll add a third one. Well, what about this? Isn't that important to her as well? Because if I know my business, I know what the wife's objections are. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I just know what they are. Yeah, I, I'm just not there to have the conversation with her. Now, by the way, as a salesperson, again, I would try to get him in the room. Hell, I try to get him on the phone. And conference call them in. But worst yeah. case, you can't do that. Why don't we train the spouse to be our surrogate nice. when we're not there?
0: Nice, I love it. So get them at least to the point where they're ready to play an active role in selling the other party.
1: And they have to tell you, Jordan, why they're in. Most salespeople just stop like, you know, would you buy? Yes, I would. Great. So you know, when can we set up a meeting with your wife? No, bad idea. <laughs> Tell me why you want to buy it. Why, why are you buying into this? And then almost challenge that person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I said, well, that's not necessarily true. What I had said to you was this, and I'm training and coaching them. And again, what you're doing is, you know, setting them up. By the way, the other mm-hmm. objection, you know, and I'll share this one with you is the, the I'll think about it. Love mm-hmm. the, that. I will think about it is a common stall that we often hear. And so, so one of the things, I don't know if you you heard one of my latest podcasts where I deal with that. I came up with what I think is the ideal formula for I'll think about it. It's like, man, it's killer. Do you know what I mean? Hit me, man. By the way, nobody's come up with this one. How's that? (laughs)
0: Love Love it.
1: All right. Nobody's come up with this one. (laughs) And this is straight up money if you do it right.
0: Well, bring it, man. What is it?
1: All right. So somebody says, I'll think about it. And I'll say, Jordan, I'm assuming you're trying to sell you, Jordan. When somebody tells me they have to think about it, they're either not interested or they're interested, but not sure. Which is it? <laughs> that's the first <laughs> two, step. That's, two questions. I, that's the first step, right? I, I got, I, now what I'm doing is I'm funneling them mentally. So either you're not interested or you're interested, but you're not sure. Now the person says, no, no, no Vic, I'm interested. I'm just not sure. Great. Let's funnel in first. Jordan, I get that. Customers always tell me, you know, Victor, I'm interested. I'm not sure. So I'm glad you're interested. Got to confirm your position, right? I said, there's three reasons why people are unsure. The first one is they don't see this as a fit. Is this a fit? And I'm being very simplistic here. You know, is this what you were looking for? You know, is this type of property you were looking for? And you say, yeah, no, Victor, that's that's the, that's what I was looking for. This is what we talked about. So if it isn't fit, then maybe there's either some features that this property doesn't have, right? So general fit, kind of a high level, right? Is that a fit? And then does it have the features? And then they'll say, no, no, it has everything, Victor. It has this. And by the way, they may tell you, you know, that I think that's it, Victor. It doesn't have this. Right, It doesn't have access to this road or whatever it may be. It's not close enough to whatever it may be. Whatever the case is, but at least they told you. But if they say, no, 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 it has everything I was looking for, I'll say, Jordan, then I'm left to conclude. Then it has to, if if it is a fit, it has everything you're looking for, then I have to assume it's finance. Is that it? Now, I've walked you through three F's. Is it a fit? That's more of like, does that look like you want to buy? Is this kind of what you wanted? Features is the second F. Does it have the specificities you want, specific things you wanted? And then if those two things are good, if I'm buying a pool, is that the type of pool you wanted? Yes. Are those the features that you wanted in that pool? that's it. Then Victor, I have to assume it's finance. And usually there, you're going to get people tapping out. Yeah, it's more than I expected to pay. Perfect. And by the way, a lot of people tell me it's more than they expected to pay. Now, if I handled that objection earlier on, right? If I set it up nice earlier on, and we'll do this during the workshop, Jordan, I'm going to show you how you can tee that up early and frame the pricing so that isn't an objection when you get to the end. But if I may insert the fourth F, if it is a fit, it has the features and it isn't financing. And you know, you have to gauge whether to be honest with you or not, but let's just assume you know, they're it's, it's a wealthy you know, person and they got the money. Then the last F is fear. And that means that somewhere in your pitch, you didn't make them feel comfortable. You didn't give them enough insight. You didn't raise their level of certainty. You didn't reduce their anxiety or they simply don't trust you because you didn't position yourself as an expert. And I'm telling you, that is an amazing formula. It's that simple to use. Not interested, interested but not sure. Great. Interested, but not sure. It's typically three reasons. Boom, boom, boom. And in there, you're going to extract information for future sales pitches. Because if they tell you it doesn't have these features, right? This is kind of what I was looking for. Well, then maybe in the next presentation you do, you block that objection early on.
0: So by the time you get to the end, you'll close easier. What do you think? Wow. Wow. So Victor, didn't you say early on that you had a background in engineering? Yes, electrical engineering. So straight out of the mind of an engineer, we have this branching logic that very logically says these are all of the possibilities that exist. And here's a process for actually intelligently funneling people through those. So depending on where they fall out, we can systematically address the concerns. I love it. Simple, powerful, accessible. Guys, this is what we're going to be talking about at PM Grow. Yes, Victor is opening the event with a kick your teeth in keynote specifically on sales marketing for property managers. I'm incredibly excited about that. But before we do that, there's gonna be a workshop. that's gonna be a one-on-one time, one-on-one opportunity with Victor. And what I like about Victor is he gets his hands dirty. He can do the thing up on stage to blow your mind. It's amazing, I've seen some of his keynotes. But more importantly, when you're up in person, belly to belly, he's willing to ad-lib and work through various scenarios. So, Victor, what are we gonna be talking about in the workshop? What does a workshop with Victor Antonio look like?
1: Well, the thing is, we're going to walk. The workshop is going to be your workshop. Let me just begin there. Everybody wants to come in as a sales trainer and give you their workshop. Uh, what I'm going to do is during the workshop, listen carefully. No PowerPoint. Workshop has no PowerPoint. We're going to work out all your issues. In other words, we're going to lay out the sales process as you see it. We may come up with two or three, then we'll dig into them. We'll figure out where the sticking points are at and you're going to give me your best. And by the way, if you've been around this business for 10, 15, 20 years, oh, I want you in that room. Oh, I want you in that room because I want to work with you. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that's where the best ideas come from. And what happens in the room with me is that you know, some of the people who've been around the business a long time, Jordan... They start giving their opinions. They start giving us insight, right? Kind of like, hey, when I'm in that situation, here's what I do. And if you're just starting out and you hear something like that, you're going to go, oh, that's what I need to start doing because I don't do that. That's when the magic starts happening. When this interaction is going on and we're really getting dirty with it, trying to figure it out, that's when it's going to happen. That's when you're going to figure out how to sell property management
0: in the real world. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm, Love it. So we've been talking about the presentation, the in-person interaction that is critical. It's the building block. You do not graduate if you don't get that right. But when you do graduate and you're thinking about hiring a salesperson, a business development manager, comp model, management, if scale is your focus, if scale is your goal, then you also want to be there. Victor can walk you through the psychology of managing a sales force. I know you've done that. We didn't choose to talk about that in the course of the interview. But if somebody has struggled with multiple BDMs where they hired them, they just didn't perform, they got frustrated, but they they fundamentally believe in the model, but they just haven't able to make it work. Is that someone that can get value to learn how to get over the hump and clone their own sales success? Can that person get value from this workshop?
1: Oh, they're going to get the value. In fact, you know, I want them to be vocal when they're in the room because I think there's other people who are going to have that same issue. And so I've dealt with this for many years now, is how do you build a sales force? But how do you build a sustainable sales force? Again, whether you want to call them business development people, account sales people, whatever you may be, how do you scale this? How do you build them out? How do you put a process in place where they can hit the ground running faster? Because the reality is, Jordan, a lot of people who are managers are horrible sales managers. These are CEOs who've built the company, have have just just grinded it out. But the fascinating thing, Jordan, is is that they they have this inability to train salespeople. And and I think this is important to note that one of the things you're going to get out of the workshop is I'm going to teach you how to train your salespeople. So if you're there for the sales training, you're going to learn that. But also, I'm going to teach you how to train your salespeople. Because if you're a manager, well, here, let me just set up the scenario and I'll be brief, is that... Has this ever happened? You have a superstar salesperson, you put them in a management role, and they simply can't train salespeople. Mm -hmm. I've known salespeople, superstars, who've been in the business for, let's say, 20 years, right? And they're like, oh, Victor, yeah, true producer. I can sell Victor, I can sell to anybody. And you ask them, how do you sell? Tell me how you sell. And they'll go, well, you know, Victor, I just go in there and you do I just talk to the customer. You know, I really, you know, let them know I care. And, you know, it's all about relationship, Victor. It's all about relationship. (laughs) That's their sales training program. (laughs) That's their sales. And so when the new guy. The the, the Nike method. (laughs) Just (laughs) just do it. Just do it. Right. So and then the poor salesperson who just joined the company goes, you know, you do the ride alongs. Right. And again, they're not learning anything because here's the thing. There's something called. Polanyi's effect, and that is you can't tell what you know. And a lot of people who are good at selling can't tell or explain what they know. And they can't transfer that information. In the workshop, we're going to lay things out so you'll be able to transfer the information. Not only learn the process, how to block objections, how to you format know, a formatted pitch, how to frame pricing and all that stuff, but also here's how you train your salespeople. Here's how you put a little roadmap together for them. So come along, man. I I want them there, Jordan. I want them there. People want to scale their business. You want to be there because I've lived through it. I've scaled sales companies or groups and I can help you.
0: I will be there, I will be butt in chair, taking notes, articulating the own internal issues that we've had with Lead Simple to level up. This guy is a consummate professional. You wanna be at the workshop. If you're there, if you're gonna be present, you don't wanna miss this workshop because at the end of the day, the best marketing strategy in the world is broken if you cannot actually close those leads. You wanna be at this workshop. Victor, I now wanna move over to the rapid fire section of the interview. We're gonna close things out with a series of questions and I just want some guttural answers from you. We do this with every guest. The questions are always slightly different. I'm first scared, question, I'm scared, I'm scared. First question I have for you now, it's it's straightforward, man. I just want some guttural answers. What time do you wake up each morning? About 5, 5.30. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Favorite airline? Uh, Delta The best city in the world is Oh, uh, Dubai <laughs> Your top travel hack to make life easier on the road Upgrade to first class <laughs> <laughs> What one mentor has had the greatest impact on your life? Zig Ziglar What one book has impacted you the most? Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged mm, Long read, worth it What's the best keynote you've ever heard from another speaker?
1: Larry Wingett, but I don't remember the title. It was uh, his last parting speech from the National Speakers Association and he just went gutter in a good way. You know what I mean? He just laid it on the line and I really loved his blunt talk. And that's gotta be a speech that's probably 10 to 12 years old, something like that.
0: All right, we'll, we'll Google it. We'll see if we can find it online. What do you think is the best keynote that you've ever personally given?
1: Best keynote that I've given. Um, I think if you search online, it's one in Raleigh, North Carolina, 3,000 people. And it's 15 minutes long and has it has like 350,000 views. Uh, and I, I, well, by the way, here's how you find it go to YouTube, type in Victor Antonio, best motivational speech ever.
0: <laughs> like okay. literally, literally okay. type that in. Okay, perfect. Well, we'll check it out after the fact. Sounds like a barn burner. If you could do it all over again, what advice would you have given to your younger self at the beginning of your sales career? Be more forgiving of yourself.
1: Hmm. Don't be so hard on yourself.
0: Okay. I like it. Yeah, it's a long journey. That makes sense.
1: It is. It is. And I think the the thing is sometimes you know we beat ourselves up when it's really just part of the learning process.
0: Mhm. Final question of the interview. I ask everybody this, Victor, and everybody has a slightly different take. Victor Antonio, in your view, are entrepreneurs born or bred?
1: I think they're bred. I think they're bred only because, the, the, you know, okay. I always tell people this. Here's how I prove it, right? If I go to the, the I don't know, to the deepest, darkest part of Africa, where there's yeah. not a lot of resources, Again, what you're going to find is that you know there are people who become creative, but then people have to learn how to be creative because out of the necessity. What I think is that the reason I believe they're bred is because sometimes it takes a bit of pressure, right? Some type of adversity, you know, that reveals sure. that character to develop. I don't think salespeople are born. I don't think entrepreneurs are born because I've seen people who have zero motivation, but man, then they see something. And it just, it lights them up like a Roman candle. You know, a perfect example, not to digress, is that, you know, you ever talk to somebody who's very quiet? Sure, absolutely. And then you hit on that one thing they love to talk about, and then they just won't shut up, right? And it's great. But, and I I think business people are like that. You know, it's nature versus nurture, right? You know, and I think it's nurture. People are just, you, you nurture that. And If you study, by the way, my favorite book on this, to prove my point, is I don't know if you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. sure.
1: Well, there, you saw that sometimes it's circumstance, right? Mm-hmm. They tell a story about Bill Gates and the Beatles. It's circumstance that made these people great. And so I believe nurture has a lot to do with it, your environment, where you're raised, all that. There's
0: no doubt about it. It's a huge influencing factor. Everybody's got a different take. I appreciate you adding your thoughts to the mix. Mine is
1: right, Jordan. Mine is right.
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's sales, man. You got to have an opinion. You got to you gotta be able to sell your viewpoint. Victor, if folks want to learn more about what you're doing between now and the PM Growth Summit, what's the best place for them to go?
1: Uh, two places. One is VictorAntonio.com. Make that easy. Or simply follow me on YouTube. And so just type in Victor Antonio, you'll find me. That's where I'm always posting new content every week. I do uh, two postings a week and it's great content. My podcast, by the way, which you'll also find on YouTube, are 10 minutes long. So man, I set up the problem, I give you your answers and I get the hell out.
0: Yeah, you dominate the YouTube search results. You're, you're like sucking all the oxygen out of the room.
1: I'm doing my best. Way. I'm doing my best. Look, if I'm going to talk about sales and marketing, I better act like that, right?
0: absolutely hey this has been an absolute pleasure it's been an honor to have you on the show we'll see you in san diego victor
1: thanks jordan you're awesome man thank you